Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Good, bad, and crazy news for conservatives. Jim, let's start with the good news. And it's not just for conservatives. It's good news for everybody. Could be a huge breakthrough in the fight against COVID. This is from Pittsburgh Station KDKA. University of Pittsburgh scientists have isolated a biomolecule that, quote, completely and specifically neutralizes the virus that causes coronavirus. University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine researchers isolated the smallest biological molecule to date that neutralizes the SARS-CoV-2 virus, according to a report published Monday in the journal Cell. The antibody component is 10 times smaller than a full-sized antibody, and it's been used to create a drug known as AB8, or AB8 maybe, for use as a therapeutic and preventative against SARS-CoV-2. The report says the researchers reported that AB8 is highly effective in preventing and treating SARS-CoV-2 infection in mice and hamsters, not only has potential as therapy, but also could be used to keep people from getting the infections, said uh, one of the co-authors. So Jim, this is uh, fantastic news. I'm not sure how fast you can turn this into effective uh, therapies or even uh, preventative measures, but uh, good work, University of Pittsburgh. Greg, this is indisputably really good news, and I think what just made it really special is that this broke late yesterday afternoon, early yesterday evening, right before the Pittsburgh Steelers-New York Giants game. And so I just had, the fact that this is coming from the University of Pittsburgh uh, School of Medicine, I just had this entire announcement in my head in the voice of Pittsburgh Dad. Uh, and I'm just surprised the press release didn't declare what a difference this would make for Yinzers. Uh, it's you know, not so tongue-in-cheek, though. It does say really good signs. This has been done in mice and hamsters. My attitude is, hey, let's start pumping this into people. Let's see how well this works. Um, and you know, kind of an important indicator, it does not bind to human cells, which indicates it probably is unlikely to have negative side effects in human beings. Uh, just kind of more broadly, you look at this development. Um, people, a couple weeks, days ago, you might have noticed that the uh, University of Oxford study on their vaccine, they had hit pause on it because one person had a very strong reaction. A day or two later, they restarted. Whatever that issue was, they figured it out. When you see somebody having that, you want to go a strong medical reaction. You want to know, okay, is this because of the vaccine? Do they have some other condition that we had not yet diagnosed or seen before we started this uh, study? Whatever it is, it appears they have worked it out, and that is continuing forward. Look, at some point in the not too distant future, we're going to have not just a vaccine, we're going to have effective treatments. Uh, it's going to be a wait. Still, you know, this is a slow process. We've got to go through all the proper checks to make sure this doesn't uh, have any of those unexpected side effects. But like I said, the prospects for this uh, uh, use as a therapy is really encouraging. I also note for one last Pittsburgh Steeler joke, Greg, that this is AB8 uh, as opposed to AB84 uh, for Antonio Brown. That molecule tended to work really effectively for a couple of years, and then it kind of went crazy. And after a while, it was just totally unreliable, and nobody could work with that molecule anywhere else. <laughs> very erratic. Absolutely. Yeah, that's not what you want in terms of, in terms of therapy for various viruses. But uh, hey, this is uh, fantastic news, and uh, hopefully it yields good results in humans, which is obviously the most important thing. Jim, speaking of having effective treatments and human reaction to that treatment, you know, it's just yesterday that Joe Biden came out and gave his environmental speech about wildfires and Trump being a climate arsonist. And he, he stressed over and over again, we're going to trust the science. 
We're going to trust the science. Well, apparently that's not exactly the approach being taken by prominent Democrats when it comes to a possible coronavirus vaccine. In fact, uh, on State of the Union, uh, the Sunday just before Labor Day, uh, Kamala Harris, Biden's own running mate, said she wouldn't trust a vaccine uh, approved by an FDA under President Trump. So, as you know, President Trump has promised a coronavirus vaccine by the end of the year or maybe sooner. Would you trust that vaccine? I think that we have learned since this pandemic started, but really before that, that there's very little that we can trust that comes out of Donald Trump's mouth. And the issue came up again last night during a U.S. Senate debate in North Carolina, a very tight race between uh, the incumbent Republican Tom Tillis and the Democratic challenger Cal Cunningham. You can kind of tell Cal Cunningham realizes he's stepped in it here, and so he tries to change the subject. But here's his approach as the moderator gets him to clarify that he wouldn't necessarily trust and take a vaccine. Do I read you to say you would be hesitant to receive the vaccine if it were approved by the end of the year? I'm going to, yes, I would be hesitant, but I'm going to ask a lot of questions. I think that's incumbent on all of us right now in this environment with the way we've seen politics intervening in Washington. I mean, if we we can almost look no further than Senator Tillis taking over $400,000 from Big Pharma and then even blocking his own party's efforts to reduce the cost of prescription drugs. So Jim, you got to love the pivot to, well, I don't know, Tom Tillis has taken money from pharma over the years. All of a sudden, the party of science isn't so sure when the politics get a little more complicated. So, Greg, you're going to have to walk me through there. Does the Tillis acceptance of the donation from the pharmaceutical industry, does that nullify the effectiveness of the vaccine? (laughs) Is there somehow when they put the check over, all of a sudden the antibodies stop working or something? There was a time, first of all, you've seen for a long time, quite a few folks, generally generally members of the media who lean to the left, try to paint the anti-vaxxer movement as an offspring of the conservative movement that these people are on the right. This was never really, there certainly are some that lean to the right or who would identify as uh, Republicans or Trump supporters or something like that. But there's always been a whole bunch of kind of the, the hippy-dippy, crystal-wearing, essential oils will save you, I trust Gwyneth Galtrow and Goop Magazine types who have always been, and, you know, oh, vaccines are bad and scary. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is a uh, prominent, outspoken critic of vaccines. So, Leo, the idea that this is only on one side of the aisle is uh, nonsense, but I think this example with Cunningham, you've seen this from Harris, you've seen this from Cunningham, this mentality amongst Democratic officials, which is that they don't, you know, look, we don't know when somebody's going to say, Eureka, we have a vaccine, it works. My guess is you, if, if, before election day, it's going to be a real tough haul. I, I don't think it'll happen before then, but it could. You never know. Most of the testing is looking pretty good right now. My guess is you could see it a little bit before election day. You could see it a little bit after election day. Keep in mind, though, it's not, you know, Donald Trump in some back room working with test tubes on this sort of thing, right? We just talked about how uh, it's Oxford University. It's this one. Uh, with the University of uh, Pittsburgh, there are a whole bunch of efforts that are generally being run by like these large conglomerates and medical schools, right? They are looking through this. They are running large-scale testing of this. It's not like Trump's going to come out and say, I've got the most fabulous vaccine. You can get it at Trump Resorts and Trump Golf Course. You know, this is not something Trump's going to whip up himself in, in the White House kitchen, right? Anything that comes to the public is going to have been through a rigorous and thorough testing process and it's going to be endorsed by St. Anthony Fauci of the National Institute for Infectious and Health Diseases and Allergies. It's going to be endorsed by Dr. Burke. It's going to be, you know, they're not going to rush out something out there that doesn't work. 
just too many people would have to be involved. And if somebody says, if somebody sees an indication this doesn't work perfectly, or there's side effects, or there's something that's going to be a concern, one, people are going to say that, they're going to hear whistleblowers, you're going to hear people saying this isn't right. But here's the other thing, they're not going to put this out and offer this to everybody all at once. The first thing they're going to do is they're going to want to give it to the people who are most vulnerable, and my guess is probably uh, first responders and doctors and people who work with coronavirus patients all day long, because they're the ones at highest risk of catching it. So, you know, this idea that Trump is going to poof, presto change, come out with something and it's going to be some snake oil stuff, just as they, I don't like, like, you know, some, not even Aaron Sorkin would write this, right? This is not some realistic scenario. But now first Harris and now Cunningham have put out this idea of, well, look, if Trump says it works, maybe you shouldn't take it, America, which is the exact attitude we don't want to cultivate. We don't want to have people thinking, oh, I can't trust it. It might have some sinister chemicals in it or something like that. Because once this thing is available to the general public, which again, I don't think it's going to happen until early next year, we do want people going out and doing it and not believing into these conspiracy theories. I don't understand how you can, you know, bitch and moan about these uh, Facebook, uh, uh, you know, cr crazy stuff on social media and then turn around and be perfectly okay with what Kamala Harris and uh, uh, Cal Cunningham are saying right now. No, it's unbelievable. And I think some people just have this vision that a president can march into the FDA and say, approve it, release it now, as, a, as, as though that can just happen. I mean, the president does have a lot of power. That's not how that works. And that's not how uh, any of that's going to work. But uh, it's, it's just amazing how all of a sudden the politics make the difference. Because uh, I think it was, was it the LA health inspector or health chief that basically said everything's going to stay shut till the election now. And so just the idea that it might be ready, might be even announced before the election. Hardly anybody would probably have a chance to take it before then. They're terrified politically of what might uh, be the consequence of, of people knowing that this is about to be available and, and, it, and it might damage their political prospects. So watching this yeah, unfold I mean, is very telling. Yeah, they, you know, this is not supposed to be a political process. This is not supposed to be something that benefits one party or the other. And you know, just one last way I can summarize this, Greg a successful vaccine against the coronavirus, it's not a Kraken. You can't just unleash it. Let's talk about Kamala Harris in another context. She's been the running mate now for, what, about a month? Uh, and she's already got her eye on the corner office, maybe. Uh, I think she just perhaps had a teleprompter problem here, but uh, some are thinking it perhaps is more of a Freudian slip. Here is Kamala Harris explaining what the next administration is uh, going to do need to make sure you have a president in the White House who actually sees you, who understands your needs, who understands the dignity of your work, and who has your back. A Harris administration together with Joe Biden as the president of the United States, the Biden-Harris administration will have access, provide access to $100 billion in low-interest loans and investments for minority business owners. So, Jim, she uh, either noticed it, noticed her stumble, realized her mistake, uh, or, or whatever, and it quickly uh, lurched back to Joe Biden, who will be president of the United States. But it just seemed to flow so easily for her to say in a Harris administration. So I don't know if, uh, if that is a Freudian slip or just a teleprompter stumble, but uh, she's not necessarily wrong that she might be calling the shots pretty quick uh, if they end up winning this thing. You know, Greg, I'm reminded of the term from the journalist Michael Kinsley of the Kinsley gaffe. He said, a gaffe is when a politician tells the truth, some obvious truth she isn't supposed to say. 
I don't know if Kamala Harris is humming hail to the chief every time she looks in the mirror. I don't know if Biden will need to hire a food taster. Probably not. But, uh, but you know, clearly she is envisioning this as something of a co-presidency. And I, I, this is one of the reasons I was a little bit surprised by the Harris spec that, uh, on the part of Biden. Um, clearly she sees herself as someone who will, if not be running the show, preparing to run the show fairly early on. Um, you know, I, I think it's a Freudian slip, you could say. This is something that she is clearly thinking instead of seeing it the other way. Um, you know, will she be a team player on this? I, I, Biden, in the, in the run-up to the decision, Biden had said he wanted somebody who would pursue, see the job the way he saw the job when Obama was president, which is his job. He, Biden believed his job was to make Obama look good. And a whole lot of days, Joe Biden did a phenomenal job of making Obama look good by comparison. <laughs> he was really locked in on that mission. Um, but that, that's where, you know, the, the, I don't, I'm not getting that vibe. And the, kind of the other interesting thing, Greg, is you notice that like since the Democratic Convention, how many times have you heard any, any notable news or any significant coverage of a Kamala Harris speech? Yeah, not much. So they didn't pick her to roll her out on the campaign trail. I, look, yes, there's a coronavirus going on. You can't do a lot of the traditional campaigning. There's particular reason to be worried about Joe Biden coming in contact with lots of people. All right, but like, what is she bringing to the campaign? What, what you know, they're not, you know, she, is she an effective attack dog? I feel like I haven't even heard very much from her on this. So we, she finally does make some news, and it's because of this idea that, hey, I'm the president in waiting. <laughs> it's just a matter of time. You know, we're going to have the inauguration. He's going to take the victory parade. And then, and then we're going to, you know, it's not going to be William Henry Harrison level, but he's going to have a very sharp presidency. I'll take over and everything's going to be fine. Look, I don't know whether she actually thinks that, but that certainly is the sort of impression left when she makes these kinds of um, gaffes, or as some of us suspect, Kinsley gaffes. <laughs> I was just thinking about this, Jim, because she certainly sees this as a stepping stone. She's got uh, tremendous ambition. Uh, she's not just going to be content to burnish Joe Biden for as long as he might be president if they win. But going back, I mean, you look at who was chosen, at least on the winning tickets, uh, and you see people who you could pretty much count on to be the good soldier. Mike Pence, obviously, Dick Cheney, Biden, as goofy as he is, wasn't about to upstage uh, Obama. Uh, Al Gore certainly wasn't going to out charisma Bill Clinton, George Bush Sr. I mean, the last guy who you really think would kind of elbow the president out of the way would probably be Lyndon Johnson. And so the fact that uh, Harris is now in this position is very different uh, from most. Maybe John Edwards, if they had won, would have would have kind of been the guy begging for the spotlight. But uh, for the most part, the role is cast as someone who's kind of bland, kind of in the background, not going to embarrass you. And uh, that's not the case with Kamala Harris. Yeah, you have to be comfortable being nominated for Best Supporting Actor. <laughs> you have to be comfortable not being in the lead. You have to be comfortable, you know, waking up every day and saying, how can I make this person look good instead of how can I make myself look good? There are reports of other, you know, examples of tension. You mentioned John Edwards. Um, in John Kerry, in his autobiography, which I wasted money on, uh, but he does say that he really, he was irritated because he kept saying to Edwards, you got to hit the Bush administration harder. You got it. And then he'd watch the speech and they say, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to hit him hard. We're going to hit him hard. And then all the sections that were added, Edwards would just skip over them in the speech. And so John Kerry really was convinced John Edwards was not somebody he could count on uh, when push came to shove. Another kind of uh, a fun example of this, is we, we've, we've seen these kinds of ideas of, you know, um, at some point, particularly in a second term of a presidency, that's when the vice president's ambitions start to get a little more visible and loud, obviously not in the case of Biden or Cheney, 
But I remember a when they were talking about running Clinton in '96. It was a Doonesbury cartoon where uh, uh, where where Bill Clinton was like, you know, look, this is getting close. I know everybody thinks we got this on. I'll get over over Bob Dole, but this is uh, we can't take anything for granted. Hillary, you're going to take Pennsylvania, and I'm going to go to Ohio. And Al Gore, where are you going to go, sir? I'm going to go to Iowa and New Hampshire. How, <laughs> how about you? Don't Al. Yeah, at some point, vice presidents that that ambition overtakes the or they that they feel this need to set themselves up for a uh, future run. And my suspicion is that for Kamala Harris, that won't kick in until like the afternoon of uh, January twenty first. <laughs> Just a stepping stone. Just a stepping stone for her, no doubt. So uh, we'll see if she even gets to that stepping stone. What do we got? Seven weeks uh, left from today. Forty nine days. Can you handle it, Jim? 49 days and counting. 48 and a half almost by the time people hear this. <laughs> it's almost like you're hopeful and looking forward to it being all over. It's amazing. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We're always very grateful for a kind review and a five-star rating. And don't forget you can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a great day, and please join us again Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.